Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 27th, 2012. Okay, warning, today's edition, I, I literally have rewritten this program three times today. <laughs> I'm still not convinced I have what I'm looking for. Ah... Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, all in the name of God, and so much of it is just couldn't be farther from the truth. It's as if... Uh, well, let me put it this way. Y- y'all remember when you were in elementary school. H- here in the United States, um, when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, every year we would have to be tested as students. And th- there were these fill-in-the-bubble tests. I forget the the acronym that they used for them, but they were bubble tests. But part of the bubble tests involved a section called reading comprehension. Reading Comprehension. You think, okay, reading comprehension, not not that big of a deal. And what you would do is that, you know, in the, as part of the bubble test, you'd have a, a test booklet. And what you would do then is you would, you know, when you get to the reading comprehension f- phase of the test, you would read a little four or five paragraph story or blurb or letter, I, you know, whatever. You read something. And then you were asked questions about what you read. All right. And your goal was to score high. You know, reading compre this is and I always consider that to be like the easiest portion of the tests that I had to take because, well, number one, um, Okay, it's like you'd read a question, you know, and, you know, the story would be about Sally and Jimmy who had 
gone to the grocery store because their mother had run out of milk. And and so, you know, the scenario is something along the lines of that. And, and, and Jimmy had only brought 25 cents with him, but Sally had 50 cents in her pocket, and the milk cost 35 cents. And so how much did Sally have to pitch? You know, the, stuff like that, okay? And so, <laughs> it's like... Okay, you, you get the idea. So, so there's maybe a little bit of math, some of the details. Or, you know, what was the color of the bow that Sally was wearing on her way to the grocery store? You know, and, and, and I'm thinking, these this stuff is like piece of cake, okay? And here's the reason why. Because they didn't take away the test booklet. They didn't take the test booklet away from you. After you read the story, so you you have your fill in the bubble scantron thing and your number two pencil sharpened appropriately, by the way, and and then you read the thing and you ask questions and you can kind of look back and you know and if your memory didn't you get what I'm saying here, not difficult to do. Okay, so what I would like for you to do is think of Sunday morning when your pastor um, gets behind the pulpit. Or the lectern, or gets up on stage, whatever the 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 way he does it is, and I want you to consider that the sermon is this. Ready? It is a test. <laughs> it's a test of reading comprehension. And and here's the deal: if your pastor fails the test, he has zero excuses for failing the test. And the reason why he has no excuses is because it's an open book test. Think about it. <laughs> okay, the job of the pastor, according to Scripture, is to, ready, here, here it is, ready, preach the word. Pre- not very, okay, preach the word. That means that when he does his thing to get ready to deliver the word of God to you, to preach the word, really all he needs is like, a book called the Bible, some context, and his job is to work. You know, if he's assigned the text, I, which I'm basically a huge fan of it. Okay, I am a huge fan of the lectionary, and it took me some. It took me some time to get used to the concept, and now I'm like, I think it should be mandatory everywhere. <laughs> and here's the reason why: is because I I think so much mischief is taking place inside of uh, the church today. It, it, all in the name of innovation, and what we we don't need innovative pastors. We really don't. What we need are men who are faithful to the biblical text. And so, I think it's much better to assign them a text and make them preach from it. Okay, so that and you know the the historic lectionaries are brilliant in their ability to take within a you know one year period cover all of the major doctrines and teachings of the scripture. I mean, you really I mean, you, you don't get the whole Bible you know preached in a year, but what you do get is all of the major teachings and doctrines in the course of a year if you're using a historic lectionary. And uh, and if you you know if you're on the three year series and you get a variety of different texts teaching all of the same doctrine you know it's, it's great it's great stuff and and here's the deal it takes it takes away the tyranny of innovation and not knowing what it is that your pastor is going to be talking about next week and not only that the repetition over the years of working through those biblical texts that actually helps you go deeper in your understanding of those biblical texts so I, i'm a huge fan of that but but here's the idea it's an open book test and you have the ability to have your book opened at the same time. And the idea is, is that you get to find out 
how much study he's put into it. Not that hard. Not that hard. Now, granted, the, the best biblical teachers are ones who are not exactly advanced in their theology, but their depth of the basics of the Christian faith really runs deep into deep bedrock, and uh, and they're they're fantastic on it. So you get what I'm saying. So if your pastor fails in the reading comprehension department, well, then it's um, more than likely that he's not qualified to be a pastor. Um, because the job of the pastor is to preach the word, and a pastor is one who, according to Scripture, is one who's studied, shown himself approved, as a workman who needs not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. It's it, And you know what? It's not that it's difficult, but it takes somebody who's disciplined, disciplined to not let their mind wander, to not get off topic, and to understand that Sunday after Sunday, it's not innovation that counts, it's fidelity, fidelity to the Word of God. His job is to help everybody in the congregation understand what God has revealed in His Word from the text that He's preaching from. That's the idea. And if you can't do that, he ought not be in the pulpit. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I told you we were kind of easing into things uh, yesterday. There's all kinds of stuff that I could talk about today. And like I said at the opening of the program, I have rewritten this program three times. And (laughs) I'm thinking I should have gone with the first edition that I had come up with. But then I thought, yeah, but the second was better, and I'm liking the third. But that it doesn't, it uh, there's an element missing from the first crack at this that is missing from the third. That uh, I'm frustrated in. Well, anyway, let's just put it this way: I, each and every edition of Fighting for the Faith, unless I tell you there's a particular theme that I'm working from. Okay, it could be a theological category, it could be a particular doctrine, it could be a particular aspect. Uh, pertaining to how somebody twists the Bible. I mean, each and every edition, there's certain things that I'm trying to work in there. And uh, for the most part, each and every segment has to do with that particular theme. Now, I don't like to name the theme. I like to teach it in such a way that over time, you're kind of, you, you, you start to get the categories intuitively without the labels. And then when you read good theological works and you run across the label, you go, oh, that's what that was. And see, that's the idea. Because um, let's put it this way. Fighting for the faith is a great place for you to learn discernment and basic theological, doctrinal, and apologetic categories. Um, but I, I kind of work with the idea here is, is that as you start to learn these things, you are going to want to go deeper. And in th- th- that being the case, um, you, you, you are then going to launch into and start adding to your library uh, certain theological works that will help you even go deeper. And so the idea is is that radio is a medium and there's limits to the medium, Okay. And so, you know, what I want to do is whet your appetite. So you go, man, I, I, how can I learn more about this? And that's a great question. How can I learn more about this? And so um, if, if you're feeling that and you're going, you know, I, 
you know, I'm really enjoying this. I want to know more about a particular doctrine or a particular thing. Then I'm doing my job right. And if you're not experiencing that, then in some senses, maybe I'm failing. But anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, uh, what we're going to do, we'll start off with something just a little bit bizarre. You, you all remember Todd Bentley, right? He's part of the Patricia King gang. Uh, he's he's the guy who who was down at that Florida, you know, revival that you know the Lakeland revival, and then that thing blew up when he had an affair with his babysitter, and then he had to be restored by Rick Joyner of. Morning Star. Well, uh, I little did I know, but um, you know, thanks to Aaron Benziger who sent out a um, a tweet today. <laughs> little did I know that Todd Bentley has several albums available at iTunes, and, and we're going to <laughs> let's just <laughs> let's just put it this way. I I don't even want to tell you the name of it yet because it's just so crazy. But it's, it has something to do with soaking, okay, this concept of soaking prayers and stuff like that. And we're going to be listening to a sample from that to kind of start things off. We'll then, we'll then do a Mark Batterson update, um, and but I won't be playing the Circles in the Sand audio. The reason being is that it has nothing to do with cir- uh, the Circle Maker per se. Uh, but uh, he's written a, a, an article called How to Eliminate Boring Sermons. And when I read this to you, you're going to find that something is seriously missing. <laughs> something is seriously missing uh for <laughs> something's like way off in this particular uh, article written by Mark Batterson and then uh, we'll take a break and what we're going to be doing uh, on the se- on the second half of the first hour is we're going to be going back to Elevation Church not to listen to Robert Morris I'll be doing a uh, segment part 2 of Robert Morris's uh, uh, the critique of Robert Morris's appearance at uh, Elevation Church later in the week. Uh, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to a particular thing that Stephen Furtick does. If you've listened to the program with any uh, frequency, then you know that uh, one of the things I fault Stephen Furtick for is that he chronically takes biblical passages, mangles them, and twists them, it twists them in a narcissistic, eisegetical way. Now, What's funny about this particular, we're going to be listening to a segment from his uh, 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 sermon number two from the Banner Years sermon series, where he's talking about the Shunammite woman from the story of Elisha. And um, what's interesting about this is that he lets on that he's aware of the criticism uh, that's been leveled against him, and he tries to, um, you know, to uh, you know, basically avert that criticism. But then he does the very thing for which he receives the criticism for, and that is as he narsegeets these passages. It's absolutely fascinating. It's, it, you know, how, how do they used to say it in the old uh, spaghetti westerns? You know, the uh, the uh, Native Americans would say, oh, white men speak with forked tongue. Well, <laughs> this segment, you're going to be hearing... Stephen Furtick speak with forked tongue, uh, literally out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he'll say this passage isn't about you or me, and then no sooner does he say that, that he turns the passage into something about you or me or actually Elevation Church. Actually fascinating. And then in hour number two, we're going to be going to uh, Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, and uh, listening to a sermon uh, that's on of all things. Uh, that's a, the, um, the, 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 the movie, the, well, the story, The Hobbit which is going to be coming out in the middle of December, which I'm very excited about. But I'm not thrilled with how uh, this particular uh, pastor, Rick Schertz, 
mishandled God's word, particularly uh, the, uh, the the minor prophet Habakkuk. You know, it's supposedly a pre, you know he's going to try to tie in the story of Habakkuk to the movie or the story of the Hobbit, and the name of the sermon series called "There and Back Again." And uh, in the, this particular sermon in the series called Cartography. So we got a lot of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You need to make yourself comfortable. And let me play our warning, warning here. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinew nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, here we go. Um, were you aware that Todd Bentley has um, albums available on iTunes that have to do with something called soaking? Well, <laughs> one in particular... <laughs> I just don't even know how to explain this. Okay, one of these particular soaking albums that's available for download and purchase at iTunes, the name of it is... No joke. Are you ready for <laughs> Are you sitting down? I'm tell if you're lifting weights, stop for a second. The <laughs> the name of this album is entitled Ready? Wait for it. Here it is. Marinating. Pickling in God's presence. <laughs> no <laughs> I'm not making that up. Again, the name of the album is Marinating. Pickling in God's presence. <laughs> Let me read the the album description to you. (laughs) This CD, the latest in Todd Bentley's soaking series, is sure to take you into the glory and the presence of God. Todd says he believes that this is his best and most anointed CD project so far. In this recording, you will hear Todd Bentley speaking powerful soaking prayers over inspiring instrumental sounds and sweet female vocals. Titles of some of the tracks include... Waiting on the Lord, intimacy, fruitfulness and anointing, drinking by faith, and marinating. <laughs> now, uh, now, if you think that I'm not going to allow you to experience Todd Bentley's marinating CD, well, then you've got another thing coming. In fact, get ready to feast your ears on this and get ready right now to be taken right into the throne room of God's glory. Um, And here is just a sample, just a few minutes, so that you can experience Todd Bentley's most anointed CD project to date, Marinating, Pickling in God's Presence. No joke, that's the name of the album, Pickling in God's Presence. Here is a sample of literally the eight-minute-long cut from this album entitled Marinating. Here, here, here we go. Yes, Lord. Fill us up. Fill us up. Oh. <laughs> Woo. 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 
We love being in your presence, Lord. We love experiencing your presence, Lord. That's what this is about, God. Marinating in your presence, experiencing your presence, soaking in your presence, drinking in your presence. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Fill me up. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hey. Where do you find marinating in the Bible? Now, this is an actual cut from the album. Now, are you feeling yourself ascending into the glory? Are you feeling the anointing of this particular <clears throat> album? This is his most anointed work to date. <clears throat> we continue. Can I go? My brain is being beaten to a pulp. Yeah, by the way, where is marinating in the Bible? Are you pickling in God's presence? Are you, are you feeling it, you know? Now, my question is, if you pickle too long in God's presence, does it wrinkle your skin? Like, if, you know, if you hang out in the bathtub of the jacuzzi too long, you know how you get all wrinkly, you know. Now, when you're done marinating, do you get to be barbecued by God? Nah, that's probably not a good thing. Where do you find marinating in the Bible? It actually comes from an ancient Greek word for baptize. Oh no. Or baptisma. Baptisma. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Baptisma. Marinating. And one of the first places you can find the use of that word was in an ancient recipe for pickling pickles. But the word also means to be fully immersed, but it also suggests saturation. So, <laughs> so Peter's preaching his great Pentecost sermon, and everyone's cut to the quick, right? And, and they, they call out to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And, and Peter says, repent and be marinated <laughs> for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, no. Yeah, I think Pastor Charmley might have to weigh in here. This is another one of those examples of the etymological uh, fallacy. Not, by the way, I, I I screwed up in my uh, my edition when I talked about it. I, I mispronounced it. I said entomological, which I think entomology has to do with bugs and critters and mosquitoes. But this is the <laughs> – yeah. I mean, seriously. I mean, using this logic. Okay, by the way, um, did you know that the word gymnasium, literally from the ancient Greek, I think it means to, well, exercise naked to in, in the nude. 
Um, uh, you know, and so I, that using this logic, I mean, every time I go down to LA Fitness, I had a you know strip down to my nothings. But anyway, I mean, so that's the sample of uh, of <laughs> Todd Bentley's most anointed <laughs> CD to date: the marinating, pickling in God's presence. Yes, you can get this on iTunes. <laughs> I think I better move along. Okay. Changing gears. From the churchleaders.com website, the headline reads, How to Eliminate Boring Sermons by Mark Batterson. That would be Mark Batterson, the author of The Circle Maker. See if you can think, if you can discover what's wrong with this particular <clears throat> article by, written by Mark Batterson. How to Eliminate Boring Sermons. Are you ready? Here we go. So Mark Batterson writes, he says, there is a world of difference between preaching a sermon and living a sermon. <laughs> what on earth? Oh, like sentence number one, we've already got a problem. Because remember, the, the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to write to young Pastor Timothy to preach the word. No, no, remember, this is what is Second Timothy chapter 4, right? You know, in light of Christ's appearing, you know, preach the word in season and out of season, that kind of thing. But, well, Mark Batterson now comes along 2,000 years later, and, and apparently we, we sh- the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, should have said to young Pastor Timothy, you know, in light of Christ appearing and all that kind of stuff, live the, uh, the, uh, um, live the sermon. What on earth is this? Okay, <clears throat> so here we go. Let me read this again. There is a world of difference between preaching a sermon and living a sermon. No amount of study can compensate for deficiencies in your life. You can study it, but if you aren't living it, it'll ring hollow. How do you live a sermon? What on earth is he talking about here? This is this is bizarre. Just really patently bizarre. All right, let's okay. All right. So, uh you can't back up your sermons with a seminary degree. You've got to back it up with your life. Um, how? If, if my job is to preach the word, right? Preach the word in season, out of season. That's the job of the pastor. Um, his life has nothing to do with it, like at all, because his life ain't in the Bible, right? Preach the word. Anyway, so, so Mark Bettison says, my advice, don't just get a sermon, get a life. Then you'll get a sermon. So let me be blunt. If your life is boring, your sermons will be too. If you have no life outside of church, no hobbies, no friends, no interests, no goals, your illustrations will feel canned, and your applications will feel theoretical instead of practical, and your sermons will be lifeless instead of life-giving. Really? Um, only if the job of the pastor is to preach his life, narcissistically. <clears throat> you get what I'm saying here? Serious. Scripture tells pastors... Study, show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly cuts, rightly divides the word of truth. Nowhere in Scripture does it say go get a life because you won't be able to preach the word unless you have a life. Um, Now, by the way, I don't even know what this means, okay? Because I don't know anybody that doesn't have a life. We all have a life. We all have different activities and things that we do. But, I mean, I had no idea, like, getting a hobby, like, you know, what what what's, what will be a good hobby? Um, you know, model plane building. Um, you know, see that will somehow make your sermons come to life. I I don't think so. What about golf? Would golf all of a sudden make my sermons better? I, no, I don't think so. Um, um, and, and do any of us not have friends? 
You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I have a select few friends that I have that are friends, uh, but I mean, how is it that my friends would make a sermon better? You, you get what I'm saying? The job of the pastor is to preach the word. So um, whether or not you have a life, I really don't think is going to make the difference. And unless, of course, a good sermon is determined by how much of you is in the sermon rather than Christ, which I think is the kind of the opposite of what Scripture really tells us to do. So we continue, though, here. Um, Batterson then says, The greatest sermons are not fashioned in the, in the study. They are fleshed out in the laboratory of everyday life. What text are you reading this from? So now, please, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. You need to study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word, uh, the word. Okay, so keep studying. In fact, study more, but you can't just study the word. You need to live it. The most powerful sermons are well-studied and well-lived. Okay, all right, so let's pretend for a second here. <clears throat> like, <laughs> okay, I'm studying the story of uh, the fall of Jericho in the book of Joshua, right? Okay. All right, so I read about how the children of Israel, they cross the Jordan River on dry ground, of all things. You know, God performs a miracle. I hear about how the, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua prior to the, uh, um, you know, the taking of Jericho. I then read the story of how the children of Israel circle the walls of Jericho, right? Um, I've never been to Jericho. I wasn't there when the walls of Jericho fell. Nope, not at all. Wasn't there at all. Um, and wh whether or not I play golf... Um, have friends, um, you know, have a life, um, you know, or, you know, or whatever isn't going to help me explain to people what's going on in that story. Unless, of course, I allegorize it and narcissize it the way Batterson does in The Circle Maker. And then ask, if he turns around and asks the question, well, what's your Jericho? Well, I don't have a Jericho. Um, I, <laughs> I don't. In fact, I've checked my inventory of things that I have here in my home. I ain't got a Jericho. I, I'm, in fact, I, my life seems to be pretty much Jericho-free. So how am I supposed to live this if I don't have a Jericho and I wasn't there at the – yeah, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, so I, yeah, I'm i not sure I get where he's coming from, nor do I really agree with him at all. It's um, boring sermons, for the most part, have to do with several things. Um, but I've noticed in, well, my life – that when I've listened to a boring sermon, generally it's because the pastor is a martext. Look it up if you're not sure what that is, M-A-R-T-E-X-T. Um, or um, or um, he doesn't really believe what he's preaching, in which case he, there's like, you know, it's it, he really doesn't believe it's God's word and um, that it's really not powerful and, you know, things like that. So you, you get what I'm saying. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with him here, and I think this is – um, although he's, you know, Mark Batterson is a well-liked author within Christendom, I think his um, ideas here, well, are more than a bit screwy and a bit off. And not at all. I mean, here's the deal. I mean, if if this problem uh, is something that we need to fix, I would look to Scripture first, not to Mark Batterson. You get what I'm saying? All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We have a Stephen Furtick update on the other side of the break. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well thought out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek all right we're back warning 
Pickling in the presence and marinating could be hazardous to your health. Spiritual health, that is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And uh, let me ask you the question. Have you considered giving the gift of Fighting for the Faith? That's right. When you support us, you give the gift not only to yourself, but you give it to other people so that they we can continue to do what we do and people can hear the message that we're bringing and learn good, solid biblical discernment. So if you don't already partner with us financially, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And please keep in mind, we're still in the middle of our uh, well, toward the end of our November bake sale, we'll probably go into a little bit of December on this one. But if you would like to support us by purchasing a Pirate Christian Radio Christmas bulb, go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. And there you will see uh, our Christmas bulbs available for sale with the uh, beaded topper with the eight Svorsky crystal crystals that my mother-in-law put in there and definitely a reasonable price and order yours and we'll send it out to you as soon as we get the order and again let me thank you for supporting fighting for the faith moving along time for a Stephen Furtick update This is our latest installment of documenting Stephen Furtick's narcissistic eisegesis, a.k.a. narcissus. 
That's where you read yourself eisegetically into each and every biblical passage. Now, the funny thing about this particular segment that we're going to be listening to from a uh, sermon recently preached by Stephen Ferticus is that he tries to create the impression that he's not going to narsajit. Hang on a second here. I better turn this music off. And so he's going to try to create the impression that he's not going to engage in narcissistic eisegesis. And no sooner does he say what would you you would think you would need him to say if he were to disavow the concept altogether. No sooner does he say that than he engages in narcissistic eisegesis. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, the text that he's going to be working from is one of the stories of Elisha, Elisha and the Shunammite woman, Elisha and the Shunammite woman, and we'll kind of pick out the uh, hermeneutical <clears throat> infractions that he commits along the way. So without any further ado, here is um, Stephen Furtick from the sermon entitled Banner Years, Then and Forever. Here we go. I was bragging to somebody the other day how I rarely repeat a sermon. If you think about it, with the rapid growth of our church, I could start reaching back to stuff I preached in year two. Almost nobody was here. (laughs) And preach that, and a lot of you wouldn't know the difference. But I was bragging, you know, I have a fresh relationship with the Lord. I don't mail it in. I work hard and preach every week. And when I got home, don't clap, because when I got home, I felt this conviction in my heart as if the Lord was saying to me, well, that's, that's pretty arrogant that you think that you said it so good the first time that people got it completely, that you're that gifted, (laughs) that you unpacked it the first time in such a profound way that nobody ever needs to hear it again. And then the Lord said to me, I think he said this. I don't know if it was him or if it was just my mind working. Yeah, it was definitely the second. It wasn't the first. But somehow I heard this impression. And it's also kind of pathetic. If that's true, that you don't need to repeat. It's pretty pathetic if you've never preached anything that was good enough to need to preach over again. So I'm not going to preach a sermon over again today. But I do want to take a passage that I preached just recently in our church because of all the sermons that I have preached, and there have been hundreds of them now, um, one of the ones that I've heard the most feedback about from people saying, that really helped me and that really put some things in perspective or that really touched me, uh, it was a sermon that I preached just a few weeks ago as of this recording called Upon Further Review. And it was a sermon from our greater series. And I preached about this woman. And I want to, I want to revisit her story for a moment and, and show you some connections that I, I had never made before. But first, let me just revisit the basics of the story. It's essential to what I want to share with you in this, in this first half of the sermon today. And uh, her story is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. And it's... It's a touching story of a woman who did something for God, and then God did something for her, and then she experienced something that she, that she never would have wanted to experience, and then she saw God come through in a greater way than she ever could have imagined. It's a great story. I'm just going to read a piece of it to you today. And uh, in, in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 4, the Bible is talking about the, the traveling ministry of this prophet Named Elisha. 
And my whole book that I, I just released is about Elisha. And this is my favorite story in, in his whole ministry because it's just so emotional and heartfelt for so many people. Well, the Bible says in verse 8, one day Elisha went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. And she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. If you like to write in your Bible, all the cool people write in their Bibles. Um, if your Bible's on your phone, it may be a highlight function or something of that nature. And uh, if you're can't, I'm going to point something out here. He's just read a portion of this passage from 2 Kings chapter 4 regarding the Shunammite woman. And watch what he does. You have to pay real close attention. He's going to have you highlight a particular phrase, a partial sentence here to make his grand point. Okay? So pay pay attention to what he's doing here. Because remember, in Stephen Furtick's way of reading the Bible, you know, Elisha bl- burned his plows, so you got to burn your plows. Um, Elisha dug ditches, so you got to dig ditches. The Shunammite woman m- made a room, so you need to make room. Watch how, she- how he does this. This is what he's going to do here. You're just looking on the screen. You may want to write this down on a note sheet. Just this one phrase where, where it says, make a small room. In verse 10, she has an idea to make a small room for God's prophet. Make a, make a small room. So she does that. And verse 11 tells us how the prophet receives her gesture of generosity and kindness from this well-to-do woman in a place called Shunem, who doesn't even have a name in this passage. You know, my question, again, you know, with his hermeneutical <clears throat> prowess, <clears throat> excuse me, it's just hard to put it that way. But uh, with his hermeneutical prowess, I mean, seriously, why is it then when, he, you know, if he gets to the story of, Eli- uh, of Isaiah, who prophesied naked, how come, you know, he, his, he, his point would be, if I mean, based on his handling of the text, well, then you've got to go through the uh, naked prophesying phase yourself, too. Um, Ezekiel cooked cakes over, um, dung. God commanded it. So have you gone through the, have you cooked your cake, your, your, your bread over dung yet? You see what I'm saying? This is no way to handle the biblical text. He's still doing it. Uh, this technique that is absolutely miserable mishandling of God's word, but we continue because it's really not a story about her as much as it's about God's purpose being fulfilled. Through her, turn the. Yeah, now this is the, kind of the important part. Okay, notice he said the story's not about her. Okay, Furtick is aware of the criticism that he n- engages in narcissistic eisegesis. Here is his attempt to basically um, create the impression that this is he's not doing that. Okay, so let me back the audio up so you can kind of hear what's going on. This is basically a form of doublespeak. He's going to try to create the impression. See, this, this story isn't about her, and, and he's going to say it's not about him, and all this kind of stuff. That should be enough to prove that he's not engaging in narcissistic eisegesis. But the problem is, is that whether or not he engages in narcissistic eisegesis has nothing to do with whether or not he just says the words, the story isn't about me. It's whether or not he makes the story about Christ, okay, or about somebody else other than himself, 
or you, or you, you get what I'm saying? So let me back this up just a little bit. Listen carefully. I won't interrupt. Here's his attempt to, at this point in the sermon to defend himself and kind of mis- engage in misdirection so that you don't think that he's engaging in narcissistic eisegesis. Generosity and kindness from this well-to-do woman in a place called Shunem, who doesn't even have a name in this passage because it's really not a story about her as much as it's about God's purpose being fulfilled through her. Turn to the person next to you tell him it's not about you either. And point at me and say it's not about him, for that matter. Point at me. Would you do that? Point at me and say it's not about him. Just tell your neighbor. Now, I would agree. I mean, it's nice that he's aware of the criticism. The problem is is that he's not changing the behavior that caused the um, criticism to be leveled against him. So listen carefully. Even though he said it's not about me, it's not about you, it's whatever. Okay, watch what he does with this text. At all the locations, you, you need to understand that there's something bigger happening in your life than your employment situation, your relational status. The sin. He, didn't he just say it's not about you? And then he then turns around and says, you've got to understand there's something bigger than your employment status and da, 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 da. it's now he's made it about you. Weird. Talk about doublespeak. ...of your past. God, God... God brings about circumstances in our lives to show the world who he is. And if we, if we follow his instructions, we, we get to experience his miracles. So this woman makes a small... Whoa, did you catch that theology? If you follow his ex- instructions, then you get to experience his miracles. This is a works-based moralistic theology that he has here. Not grace. This is works. A simple act, a gesture of generosity... And it so moved Elisha, verse 11 says, one day when he came, he went up to his room and lay down there on his futon. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said, tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us. And what could be done for you? Um, we owe you one. Can, can speak on your behalf to the, to the king or the commander of the army? See if we can get you a little something. I mean, I got some deals in Washington. I got some alliances. They owe me a favor or two because I speak God's word to them. I can, I can, I can pull some strings. And she replied, no, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not in need of anything. I, I have a home among my own people. And Elisha won't let it go. In verse 14, he says, what can be done for her? And Gehazi said, well, she has no son. And in the original Hebrew, it says her husband is shooting blanks. So in, in, in that context, Elisha makes a bold prophecy. He says uh, in verse 15, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway and, and he prophesied to her, try this sometime. About this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. Try that sometime. See, see what response you get. And, uh, and don't blame me for the results. And uh, I think you'll find that it, it was a supernatural thing for, for this prophet to speak those words to this barren woman. And she is, she is so surprised by this, this moment, this, this miracle, that she almost doesn't believe it's possible. And I'm not going to re-preach the sermon because you can go download it. But, but I, I talked all about those things in our life that we've been so disappointed about for so long that we've given up hope that they can change. And how God is, is sitting above the earth on a throne overruling our objections. This is a great sermon. I don't have time to preach it. But, uh, but, but, but here's what you need to know. 
she objected in verse 16. No, my Lord, don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. What a great story. And then the kid dies, and Elisha raised the kid from the dead. So it's an awesome story. Bible's great. That's the story of the, the Shunammite woman. And it, and it all started because she, she took initiative to, to make a room. For, okay. For, for the man of God. And, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about how in our lives, we, we all need miracles. And we all want God's favor and we all want God's blessing. But the fact of the matter is we, we can't make God move in our lives. When we started this church uh, seven years ago, we were... Okay, he's changing the subject at this point. Remember his hermeneutical technique. You find what somebody, you know, Elisha dug ditches, so you need to dig, 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 dig ditches. Elijah burned his plows. You got to burn your plow. So the Shunammite woman made a room and she was able to experience the miraculous. Well, you got to make a room and so that you can experience the miraculous. No joke. We're very aware. We can pray. We can preach. We can plan. We can invite. We can invest. We can do all of these things. But, but you know, God's got to build this church. It, 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 it can't be us trying to twist God's arm to, to make it happen. We- God's got to build this church. We can't twist God's arm. Who, who's he preaching about now? Didn't he just say it wasn't about them? We can, we can seek him and we can, we can hope and we can expect, but, but we can't make God move. Say it out loud. I can't make God move. But here's the good news. Although you can't make God move in your life, you can make room for what? For God to move in your life. I, I can make room for God to move in my life. Uh-huh. Where do I make that room? Spare place in my heart, uh, extra bedroom in my home. Maybe I can clean out one of the closets or something. How much room does he need? You, you, you can't make God move. Come on, I need some help at the other locations. Providence is quiet. I remember how quiet this campus is. This is the intellectual campus. Studious. Silent strength in the Lord. <laughs> now, I love this campus because if you want to know the truth, the whole reason our church is reaching people for Christ today. Now, watch who's he preaching about. He's preaching about himself and the church. He's preaching about them. He just said this text isn't about them, right? That's what he said. So watch what he does now. Is because of people who loved God enough to make room for what he wanted to do in our city, our world. You can't make God move, but you can. And I'll say, we must, as individuals and as a church, continue to make room for God to move. Now, that's the first part of my sermon. I want to give you the halftime show. I asked them if they would make me a little TV like they have on the election night where I could touch the screen and show you some stuff. Let's pray. Everybody stretch your hand toward the screen. 
in Jesus' name. Fantastic. Huh? And if you look at this screen, every location, you will see a snapshot of what God is doing in our church right now. I don't have a lot of time, and I know that some of you are bored with statistics, and uh, some of you don't care about the souls that we've reached for Jesus Christ. So now he's going to give a summary of all of the statistics and numbers and talk about them, because they made room for God, and because they were able to make room for God, God was able to work the miraculous there in their city. Because you hate God. But, but a lot of you may be interested to know what the Lord's doing in our church. And, and I think it's appropriate to boast in the Lord. If you're going to make your boast, you, you boast in what the Lord has done. So let me show you a few things. Let's... He's really boasting about them because they're the ones who made room, remember? Snapshot. A little snapshot of what God has done. Uh, and this is by the numbers. Of course, we could tell stories because behind every statistic is a story. But I want to show you some statistics because I think it's pretty cool. Right now, the average attendance at our church here to date is 11,458 people every weekend. That's up from 100 and, 121 people the first weekend that we started less than seven years ago. Isn't it amazing? I mean, he's taken this text you got to make room. said it wasn't about them, but then now he's preaching about them. Weird, isn't it? In the atrium. Wake up, dude. That's awesome. Don't look at me bored. I'm talking about souls for Jesus Christ. In our church, and I'm just circling stuff because it's cool. Uh, we have over 3,000 volunteers. The people are getting connected in these little uh, groups that we call e-groups. And uh, we have 152 students. Yeah, he's going to go on and on and on. You get the point, right? So on the one hand, he says it's not about them. Then he takes the text, uses takes a, a, an idea out of context, uses that as the hinging point to then talk about them. He's not talking about Jesus, is he? No, like not at all. So, yeah, that's exactly how Stephen Furtick does it, and that's exactly why he continues to be what I would consider the king of the Narsajites. And with that, we are going to take our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate christian click on the subscribe button there by the way or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we will be right back first sermon on the new movie the hobbit sort of um, on the other side of the break you don't want to miss it we'll be right back relevance schmelevance we preach christ crucified for our sins you're listening to fighting for the faith pirate christian radio theater presents death of a salesman are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The 
The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time this is a weird sermon because it supposedly has something to do with the story of The Hobbit, which is going to be that big blockbuster movie that's coming out in a couple weeks, and something to do with the prophet Habakkuk. Yeah, never put those two together, but apparently this guy has. Let's do this right, though. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's Masleration <laughs> comes to us via Gateway Church in Austin, Texas. Martex Rick Schertz presiding. The name of the um, Masleration is entitled There and Back Again Cartography. Yeah, There and Back Again is kind of the long name for the, for the story of The Hobbit, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. All I can say is, if you start off anywhere other than the biblical text, if that's where you're going to start, you're going to start anywhere other than the biblical text, you uh, risk the possibility of like not rightly handling the biblical text when you get to it, because you're going to try to make the biblical text fit by shoehorning it into the points that you're trying to make from the other source. You get what I'm saying? I think that's where things go wrong here with uh, Rick Schertz. So what I'm going to do here, let's go ahead and kill the music. Without any further ado, here is uh, the sermon there and back again, cartography. And just so you know, be warned, it ends at a bizarre point. That has nothing to do with me. That's how it came down uh, from their from their podcast when it arrived on my computer. So it, it, at the end of this thing, it's going to be just a, a weird, jolty cutoff. That's their doing, not mine. So here's Rick Schertz, there and back again, cartography. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. (laughs) Yep, we're off on a bad foot. Really bad foot. I like the story of the hobbit. I'm a Tolkien fan. Love the story of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, I read Silmarillion when I was in junior high. Love the stuff. But this is not what you're supposed to be preaching on. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole. And that means comfort. 
It had a perfectly round door like a porthole, painted green with a shiny yellow brass knob in the exact middle. The door opened onto a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, a very comfortable tunnel without smoke, with paneled walls and floors and tiled and carpeted, provided with polished chairs and lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. The hobbits were fond of visitors. The tunnel wound on and on, going fairly, but not quite straight into the side of the hill. The hill, the hill, as all the people for many miles round called it, And many little round doors opened out of it, first on one side and then on the other. No going upstairs for hobbits. Bedrooms, bathrooms, cellars, pantries, lots of these. Wardrobes, he had had whole rooms devoted to clothes. Kitchens, dining rooms, all were on the same floor and indeed on the same passage. The best rooms were all on the left side going in. For these were the only ones to have windows deep-set round windows looking over his garden and meadows beyond, sloping down to the river. This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind. Just want to make this clear. Um, There are no Bagginses mentioned anywhere in the Bible, just if you were confused, because I know this is sermon time during a church service, but... We're not getting that. And people consider them very respectful, not be only because most of them were... You know what the tragedy of this particular masleration is? Um, and that, the tragedy is, is that he's going to do a better job of handling the story of the Hobbit than he is the biblical text. No joke. He, he's reading this, story, this section from the, the book of the Hobbit, The Hobbit, with far more reverence and respect and accuracy than he's going to actually give to the biblical text. You would, yeah, it's sad. More rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect. Oh, but he gained. Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. And such is the beginning of the Hobbit, or as referred to by some, there and back again. Now, I have to admit, I have wrestled with how to begin this series. I suppose it shouldn't be hard. I get up and read a little bit and start talking about adventure, but I'm compelled to actually... Uh, Start talking about adventure. Why would you want to talk about adventure? When did that become a Christian doctrine? To begin this series with a little bit of a warning label. And I do that because you first hear, hey, we're going to do this series called There and Back Again. And you may not have ever read The Hobbit, or maybe you've read it and you read it years ago, or maybe you've seen the trailers for the upcoming movie, and you think, well, that's kind of a neat idea. They're going to do kind of sort of a spin off The Hobbit. And you may not know much about it, but you do know enough about it to know that it's an adventure. It's a story of an adventure. And with that little bit of knowledge, you can safely assume that throughout this series, I'm going to be talking about the adventure of following Christ. A You can be a Bilbo Baggins 2 kind of a series. 
was Bilbo Baggins a follower of Christ? I, I had no idea if, that he was. Weird, because Jesus isn't exactly mentioned in The Hobbit. <clears throat> Which, let me say, that would be a great direction to go, and I will kind of sort of go there. But as I reflected on it, I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this. And I'm doing this for reasons that I... Ex- yeah, I wish you'd take the exegetical approach. Start with a biblical passage and teach and preach it. And just leave The Hobbit and Tolkien for some other time. You know, you could do that at home with your friends. Explained just a moment ago before I started here and that... Uh, we've been in a big, bold time around here. We had soul revolution, and we have this... Big, bold time. Soul revolution. Yeah, sounds serious. Life-giving life project going on, and uh, it's a time where we're taking a lot of initiative right now, and many of you have taken some really bold steps on this adventure of following Christ, which I absolutely love, because I love big visions, and I love being... A- really? Okay. Big visions. Yeah, you like... What do you mean? Where, where does the Bible talk about big vision? A part of a church where collectively we're going to do something in this world. We're going to make a difference in the lives of each other, in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our city, in the lives of the world. We're going to... You're going to make a difference. Who cares? That's not what Christians are supposed to do. They're supposed to proclaim the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. You make a difference? What does that even mean? How would I know if I, quote, made a difference? <sighs> We're going to be extremely relevant in this world and make a significant and genuine difference. Now, Oh, yeah. That, yeah that's, that's how you do it. You make a significant and genuine difference by being relevant in the world. <sighs> yep. Have you read the stories about Robert Schuller? I mean, he, he did not get all that money that he was hoping for. I, I think the uh, you know after they liquidated all the assets of the Crystal Cathedral... At the end of it, I mean, he's got like only $700,000, right? You know, those big people who live live by relevance, they die by irrelevance. You're familiar with that story, right? Put all that together, though, and for this series, I don't think we need a big, bold vision. And I don't think we need a big, bold call. A little different than that. What I do think we need is some some genuine conversation how about some genuine Bible preaching? About what it's truly like to be on the adventure of following Christ. Why would you need that? You need to preach the word. That's your job. Have you read your b- biblical job description? It's right there. Like, se- Just read 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, and Titus. It, it ought to clear things right up for you as to what your job is. You're not, you're, your job has nothing to do with t- describing or telling people about a big, bold adventure. Not just what it's like to gaze upon the vision, but what it's like to experience putting one step after another for a long period of time, which leads to my warning label. I'm 42 years old. I've been following Christ uh, intentionally for about half of my life, uh, a little more than 20. Did you do it unintentionally the other half? What does that even mean? 20 years. Uh, Now, in this journey, over the last year or so, I've noticed some rumblings in my internal disposition. Uh, It's been subtle, but it's been very real. There's been an internal and growing struggle in my inner world. Like many of you, I seek God very intentionally. I work very hard at life, you might say. 
And I like that. I'm glad that I do. So for 20 or so years, I've been plodding along, putting one foot in front of the other on this adventure of following Christ. I've arranged my time, my energy, my vocation, my finances, really everything. As far as I can tell, I've held nothing back in this adventure. Over the last year or so, though, I've noticed something in me. Put plainly, um, I have struggled to be as committed as I have once been. I've found my heart wandering. I've had a much more difficult time than I've ever had engaging my spiritual disciplines, for example, and that's unusual for me. Um, one might say that there's been a battle going on between my head and my heart because my head knows the answers. I've been in this long enough, I know the scriptures well enough, and I've talked about this enough that I know the answers, but my heart, it keeps raising its hand with this question. And my head comes along and it pulls my hand down and then my hand pops up again and my head pulls it down and my heart pops up. Why are you torturing us with all this internal talk? Go see a therapist then if you think this is a problem, but you're not supposed to be doing this during the sermon time. You're supposed to be preaching God's word. I I could care less about your internal struggles and the splagnizomai going on inside of you. Who cares? Open up the Bible and preach it and teach it. Ah. Uh, The question up again, and kind of goes back and forth. And every now and then, my head allows my heart to ask a question. And in one form or another, my heart asks this question. Put simply, it's this. Is this really worth it? Is this adventure of following Christ really worth it? Because it sounds worth it when you hear the big vision, when you hear the big call, when you hear we're going to go for it. But what's it like when you actually get into the middle of it? Now, um, I've gained some important insight as I've allowed my heart to ask these questions, but I'm still very much in process. Um, A few months back... (sighs) Again, go see a therapist. Leave that stuff there. We don't need any of this during sermon time. Ah! back i was cycling i like to cycle get exercise and such it clears my head and when i cycle i often talk to god um it looks a little odd for the people who pass me on the path they wonder who i'm talking to but i just kind of have this conversation with god and so i'm cycling a few months ago and i'm, I'm talking to god and i'm telling him kind of what i'm telling you right now where i'm saying you know god i just don't feel like i have it in me anymore I want to have it in me, but I don't have it in me. I don't have the the get up and go in me. I tell myself to get up and go, but I'm not getting up and going. And I'm a little embarrassed to tell you where my mind went. It will sound like my mind just wandered, and maybe it did sort of. But uh... (laughs) Serious, for me, folks, this is the equivalent of fingernails on a chalkboard. Serious. I mean... All of this pop, internal pop psychologizing going on with a spiritual-ish dip to it, this is the thing that just sends me. Seriously, dude, man up and stop talking about your feelings and open up the biblical text. This is around the time that football season was starting, and my mind drifts off and starts thinking about football. Um, uh, and actually, one of the topics at the time, the hot topics in sporting news, was about Tim Tebow uh, because he'd been traded from, this really does make sense, but he'd been traded from the Broncos to the Jets. And that means that he'd been traded from this starting position on a team he'd led to the playoffs to a second string position on, a Jets, on the Jets. And the Jets were really struggling, and they've struggled this year. It's been proven true. Uh, so I'm riding my bike trying to talk to God, and my mind starts thinking about Tim Tebow's plight, which, again, sounds kind of silly. But 
well, what I'm thinking about is how Tim Debo is known for his legendary workout. Do you remember the movie Airplane? It's not a sanctified movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm not necessarily recommending it. But there, there's a character in there who does this to people. He just like sits down and just like starts spewing whatever internal angst and internal things that he's struggling with. And in the movie Airplane, it's it's a comedy. Um, different people uh, start doing things to harm themselves as a result of listening to his story. You know, I think there's a nun who hangs herself. I mean, seriously. I'm about to commit Harry Carey here. Ugh, involuntarily, too, at that. This guy works hard at football, right? You can say what you want about the guy, but the guy works very hard. He works out very intentionally and very rigorously when it comes to this game. So I'm riding my bike, talking to God about how I'm not wanting to give him my all anymore, and I have this thought pass through my mind. I wondered if it was hard for Thibaut to maintain the intensity of his workouts after this change. Like, like what was that like? I then wondered. <laughs> just going to lose it. This is just. <laughs> if it would be hard for him a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now, if his expectations for the NFL, if they never got met. What if he never plays in the playoffs again? What oh, no. What if Tebow's expectations of the NFL are never met? Oh, that's just terrible. I just... <laughs> what if he never has a solid starting role? What if he never makes it to a Super Bowl? And all that wrapped up to this one question, how much of his commitment to the game is fueled by his expectations of what is going to give back to him? What if those expectations aren't met? What if he doesn't get what he hoped he would get? Will he still be as committed then? Will he still have his legendary workouts? All right, this little trip through your brain, Rick, has basically proven one thing. Uh, your thoughts are not nearly as lucid as the thoughts in Scripture. So let's lose your thoughts and this little internal talk that you've had with yourself. And can you open up the Bible, please? So that's where my mind went after pouring out my heart to God when riding my bike. And then I realized that uh, I don't think my mind was actually wandering. I think God was showing me a parallel uh, experience that someone else was going through. Kind of a Yeah, don't blame this on God. Really, I don't think he had anything to do with it. A metaphor for what I was experiencing. He was showing me that my struggling commitment had something to do with my unmet expectations for this adventure of following Christ. What? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no. You have unmet expectations from the adventure of following Jesus? <gasps> what do we do about that? Yes, I was willing to give God my all. But I was willing to give him my all on condition of certain expectations being met. Those expectations were not being met. So there I was, not so sure I was as in as I once was. And that thought, it nearly stopped me on my bike. Because I didn't realize the expectations I had put on God. Oh, this, I, I don't even recognize these as normal thoughts. Nor do I recognize this as Christian theology or having anything to do with the Bible. And here's the fun part. Are you ready? Like I said, he's going to try to connect the story of the Hobbit. This little psychological trip through his brain and heart and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry that I didn't tell you about the slime ahead of time. And then he's going to try to connect this with the story of Habakkuk. Yeah, no kidding. It can't be done. I know, I know. We continue. 
I later had a second thought that was both helpful and also a little bit of... No, it's not helpful. The first thought was like the farthest thing from helpful. I don't need a second one. It's embarrassing to get up here and tell you about, but I was thinking about the fact that I'm 42, and the thought of that hit me that 42 is like midlife. And I've heard the phrase midlife crisis before, but I've never really studied it. And so I did a little research, um, very little actually. Um, I went to Google and typed midlife crisis, which that would have been fine, but I was on Google Images and I didn't realize that. So I typed midlife crisis and this is what pipes up on the screen, this, this photo. And I'm thinking, great, I'm becoming Ted Beasley. Like, that's what's going to happen to me. You know, I, that's, that's horrible. So now I'm really motivated, and I go over to Wikipedia, and I've got to read on this and study about this to find out what this really is. And it was fascinating what I learned. I quickly learned that... So far in this sermon, uh, we've had a segment from the story of The Hobbit, and now we're being regaled with... An entry from Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, just, just it horrible. That midlife crises, they have to do with unmet expectations. Gasp. No. And it can go a couple of different ways. On the one hand, there can be the expectations that people have of what they're going to do in life and what they're going to experience in life and what they're going to accomplish in life. And that expectation is up here, but reality comes in about here, comes in below that. And so they're disillusioned by their unmet expectations. The other is the person who has their expectations up here, and they meet those expectations, or maybe they exceed those expectations, but it doesn't feel like they thought it would feel. It's not as satisfying as they thought it would be. Now, discovering that was a little bit disheartening because either way, you get one, right? Either way, there's this time that many of us pass where we get a little disillusioned of I did an accomplishment or I did accomplish it. And either way, I'm just kind of a little disillusioned with what things are feeling like and being like uh, around here. The common theme being unmet expectations. We say, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to experience that, and I'm going to have all this, and we do it, and it's not this. It's this. It's just different than what we thought it would be. And so I'm reading about this and thinking about this and praying about this and talking to those close to me about it, kind of trying to process it openly. And a few weeks ago, I send John this text. And I text him, and I say, John, um, I'm wondering if I could process something with you. It's a little more personal in nature. And I think I scared him because, you know, I mean, we talk all the time. Uh, but, like, an hour later, he has me in his office. Like, what are you going to tell me? And I tell him pretty much what I'm telling you right now. And uh, just tell him, I, I don't really know exactly what's going on with me, but there's just kind of this funk that I've been in, and I'm having trouble getting traction. And, John, you've known me for 20-some years, and you know uh, how I'm wired and all that. And I just wanted to kind of bring you into my process. And we talked for a good long while. It was great. And he gave us some... You wanted to bring him into your process. <laughs> some great things to think about and affirmed a lot of what I was already thinking. But in the end of the conversation, he's praying for me. And after he prayed, he said, hey, I had this idea while I was praying. He said, um, I think that you should consider teaching your way out of this. And I was like, I don't know what you mean by that. What, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you've got this series coming up about the journey, about the long perspective of life. I think you should take full ad advantage of that and process some of this openly. Which that sounded horrible, but it also sounded cheaper than counseling. And so, 
So, like, here's my warning label, okay? It, I actually wrote this out. Um, warning. Today's message is being brought to you by a middle-aged man a bit disillusioned with life. <laughs> if any of it sounds odd, out of place, or flat-out wrong, you're not only at church, you're also at his therapy session. So... <sighs> Well, that explains everything. You're not supposed to be doing that. Leave your therapy session with your therapist. Job of a pastor is to preach the word. Doesn't And by the way, giving us a warning and confessing the fact that this is a therapy session doesn't excuse it. This is absolutely unexcusable. Welcome to my therapy session um, where I get to preach to myself and you get to listen in. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but we'll take a swing at it with this series. So yeah. here's what if you got a pastor do this, literally get up and leave. Don't hang around for this. You don't need to be your pastor's therapist during group therapy during the sermon time. He has a job to do. And if he can't do it at that time, he needs to step down and let somebody who can do it do it. I'm going to do. I'm going to take us to what I believe to be an extremely important portion of Scripture, one that has meant a great deal to me lately. Uh, it's a flyover book. It's the book of Habakkuk. A flyover book. Never heard it referred to as that, but I agree. It is an, it is a very important book. Um, the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. But it's, it records this powerful conversation between God and Habakkuk, this dialogue between the two of them. And it opens with this, Habakkuk 1-2. Oh, Lord, how long? How long? Now, you don't have to finish this guy's prayer to know that it sounds familiar. You and I, we've either thought it, we've either prayed it, or we've prayed something else because we thought we we're supposed to be nice to God when we pray. It's an honest and forthright prayer. God, how long is this going to take? How long am I going to have to put up with this? How long is it going to feel this way? Or Okay, Habakkuk was not doing therapy with God. If you have your Bible, open up to Habakkuk. It's, it's a minor prophet, you know, dead center of your Bible or, you know, a little bit to the right of the center. Um, and you got to understand something about this. Put it back in its historical context. Habakkuk is prophesying during the reign of Jehoiakim, one of the most evil kings of all time in the in the history of Israel. Israel, or, or you know Judah at this point, they have literally just gone through, just gone from bad to worse in the idolatry department. The northern kingdom of Israel, I mean, taken off in captivity as God's punishment. And Judah is engaging in gross and egregious idolatry, and evil is prospering, and there just seems no end in sight. You know, many of the, the prophets that God has sent have been killed, and they're not listening to them. And you know, and so the question about how long? Okay, remember he's speaking as a prophet. He's talking. Okay. How long is God going to allow evil to prosper? That's kind of the thing that's going on here. And what kind of imp what's the implication that this has to do with the promised Messiah? All right, that's kind of the other thing that's going on in the background of this book. <clears throat> Let me read. We're not going to read the whole thing even though it's only 3 chapters. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how Long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Okay? There's a very specific thing that Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord about. And that's, in his time at this point, the complete prospering of evil and God not doing anything to stop it. Okay? At least that's what Habakkuk thinks. The Lord answers him in verse 5. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Pause here for a second so you understand what's going on here. God's answer to Habakkuk regarding the thriving of evil is, listen, I'm doing something. You're not going to believe it when, I, if, when you hear it, but here's the deal. You know those wicked and evil Chaldeans, those idolaters? <laughs> I'm raising them up to punish Judah. <laughs> yeah, you go, you're going to do what? They, so the, probably the worst, most egregious sinners on the planet, God is going to use them to punish Israel, right? They are dreaded and they are fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose God is, well, whose might is their own God. <laughs> this is your answer to the problem of evil. Oh, wow. So Habakkuk responds to the Lord's response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Little confidence there in the, in the fact that God's going to save a remnant for himself. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. He Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, that's an important verse there. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That is quoted three times, by the way, in the New Testament. Get to there in, in the minute. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. Okay, so you kind of get the the dialogue that's going on here. There's a real context to it, and the real context is what appears to be God idly sitting by and doing nothing while evil is thriving, while idolaters are in control of the kingdom itself, where evil is compounding upon evil and going from worse to worser. You get what I'm saying? And God says, listen, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do here, but I'm going to raise up that evil, wicked people, the Chaldeans, to punish Israel. And that's the interplay that's going on here. But the key verse there, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Like I said, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. And let's uh, let's take a look at those real quick. Um, Habakkuk uh, uh, 2.4, sorry, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And this is one of the key passages that is picked up uh, by the Apostle Paul via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Check this out. I'm going to read this in context. So, so the first one, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, I'll put it in context. Romans chapter 1, I'll start at verse 14. Here's what it says. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This opening chapter of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Perfectly legit translation, by the way, in the Greek. Um, The one who, who, who by faith is righteous shall live. In fact, that's the way I prefer to translate this one. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. And I would throw into that, you know, how it's used in Galatians to kind of bear that out. So again, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, also appears in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. I'll add a little context starting at verse 8 there in Galatians chapter 3. Here's what it says. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So that you'll notice that this verse is a key piece so the whole idea and concept of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Last appearance, by the way, in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. 
I'll start at verse 35. Here's what it says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrink and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Key passage regarding salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We are declared righteous before God by faith. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. Okay? Good stuff that you can do with the book of Habakkuk, but Unfortunately, we've discovered that um, uh, Rick here is actually, um, he has no idea how this sermon's going because he's using it as therapy time, self-therapy and self-talk time. And this passage in Habakkuk, you know, he, he's, n- he's not even paying any attention to the historical context. He just sees a dialogue between Habakkuk and God and thinks that he can just hijack the conversation and twist the details of the conversation to fit his therapeutic needs at the moment. There's no way to handle the biblical text, by the way. Be this way. We've either thought this prayer or prayed this prayer. And Bilbo Baggins has his own how long experience in his adventure as well. Bilbo Baggins is a hobbit. And as a preface to my edition describes, hobbits are little people, smaller than dwarves. who love peace and quiet and good tilled earth. And a moment ago, I read the Bagginses. They never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. In the opening pages, Bilbo explains this. He says, we're plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. He describes adventures as nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. Right? He just doesn't like them. Which would be fine, and we could accept that about Bilbo Baggins, if it weren't for this one curious little fact we learn about him along the way. Actually, early in the story, we learn that Bilbo Baggins loves maps. You know, why do you love maps if you just want to stay home? What's that about? Well, we also quickly learned that like the rest of us, Bilbo Baggins is not quite as simple as you might expect. Yes, he's a hobbit, but he craves his comfort, comfort, and he bristles at being stretched, but there's more to him than that. Bilbo's mother is a took. Belladonna Took was her name, and the Took clan would do the unthinkable. They would go on adventures. So there was something very unhobbit-like running through Bilbo Baggins' blood. An odd strain that despite his disposition for security and safety and comfort, he also longed for adventure. And so maybe there's something in this guy that wants to get up and get out. And early in the story, he's listening to some dwarves sing this song. And during the song, the unthinkable happens. It says this, something tookish woke up inside him. And he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and waterfalls and explore the caves. I love this line. And wear a sword instead of a walking stick. You know, this comfort craving hobbit, he had a little fire in his belly and he wanted to. Again, I'm just going to make the point again. He does a better job of handling the text of the hobbit than he does the biblical text. That is extremely problematic. Go. He wants the big, bold vision. He wants to do things and go places and experience things. And maybe a map, maybe a map is the one thing that could satisfy both his hobbit-like tendency for security and safety and his took-like tendency to want to go because a map could take him up and over the horizon without really going there. He could dream of adventure without really having one. But he did have one. 
He ultimately left the shire. He left comfort. He left security. He stepped up and out. And you can almost expect exactly what he would experience. It led to dreams of home, to dreams of the shire. In one place as he slept, we read, All night he dreamed of his house and wandered in his sleep into all his different rooms looking for something that he could not find nor remember what it looked like. Which brings me back to Habakkuk. Although Bilbo didn't say it, and although he didn't pray it, we can hear the echo of Habakkuk in moments like this. Oh, Lord, how long? How long is this adventure going to be? Bilbo dreams. Uh, what are you talking about? Again, the reason why Habakkuk is saying, oh, Lord, how long, is because evil is thriving. has nothing to do with an adventure or Bilbo Baggins. This adventure is not all I expected it to be. There's a part of me that wants to go back to that comfort of my home in the Shire. The full verse in Habakkuk says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Habakkuk looked at the world around him and it was not all that he hoped it would be. He had followed God faithfully and yet he saw injustice in the world. Where was the justice God? He had followed God faithfully, and he saw evil in the world. Where was the correction to the evil? He saw hurt and had been hurt. He had saw hardship and had experienced hardship. There were times that not only did he see evil, but he probably wondered if he himself was evil. And so he prayed, destruction and violence are before me, God. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice, it never goes forth. Habakkuk looks around him, and just like you and I, he looks at the world around us, and he gets hurt, and he gets frustrated, and he gets confused. He is taken advantage of. He thinks he's on the brink of something good, and it gets taken away from him. He experiences frustration and challenges. Habakkuk and Bilbo and you and me, we long for something better than this. And oftentimes, that's what brings us to God. That's what makes us want to follow God in the first place. God, things aren't going real well the way I'm doing life, so I'm going to follow you. And surely you're going to fix all this. Now, I haven't read it through these lenses before, but as I read Habakkuk now, I hear him saying saying something that I've been saying. He's saying, God, my expectations, they're not fully being met. I expected something a little bit different than this. You know, God, my expectations, they're, they're being frustrated. I didn't think it would be like this. Habakkuk saying something to the, effect of, to the effect of, you know who's prospering, God? You know who's living the life? Evil people. They're the ones prospering. They're living unjustly, and they're getting away with it. Now, I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer like that or ever thought a thought like that, but there are lots of versions of it. I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe you've had family expectations. Maybe you've thought to God, God, I don't get it. I follow you faithfully. I pray. And yet you've yet to give me my spouse. Or you've yet to give me a child. And yet that crack addict, she keeps getting pregnant. Why are you giving her babies and not my family? Or put another way, I expected something different from you, God. Or I don't get it, God. I'm ethical in my business practices. I do the right thing. And yet the person who gets promoted is the cheat who walks over people to get there. People say cheaters never prosper, but that guy sure is prospering. I'm not. What's that about? Or I don't get it, God. I follow you faithfully, and yet my kids rebel, and my spouse's heart wanders. Or I don't get it, God. I seek you faithfully, and it sure seems like the people who get the good life are the people who live the bad life. It's that kind of prayer that Habakkuk is bringing to God. Now, this isn't right. This isn't good. If you're truly good and just and all the things I've heard about you, then, God, wouldn't you straighten 
this out. My expectations for the, this epic adventure. They're... It's like you're right and you're wrong all in the same sentence. It, oh, he's not dealing with psychological expectations. He's dealing with expectations regarding God's justice that God set by di- divulging and revealing things about his own character and will. Huh? They're, they're not exactly being met. Now, here's one of the reasons I love Habakkuk. I love, first of all, that Habakkuk is so honest with God. I love, secondly, that God is so honest back to Habakkuk. Because God does respond to him. God says this. I am going to do something in your days, Habakkuk, that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, that can easily go overhead. Let me uh, unpack it briefly here. He's saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. There are people who they seize dwellings not their own. If you seize a dwelling that's not your own, that means you are unjust. You are doing, doing an injustice to somebody. And he's saying, Habakkuk, you're complaining about injustice. You're crying out and asking that straighten things out. You're asking me, how long uh, will things not be right? Here's my response. It's getting ready to get even more unjust, Habakkuk, because I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to bring the Israelites to their knees. The very thing you're asking, I'm getting ready to do the opposite. To which Habakkuk says, thank you, God. I mean, that's exactly what I was expecting from my little focus group with you here. So, um... That's what I see you're going to do. I'll put it in our context. Here's how it'd be. It's a conversation between you and your boss. You go to your boss. Hey, boss, do you realize Tom is a cheat that he steals from you? And your boss says, yes, I realize Tom is a cheat and he steals from me. So you say to your boss, what are you going to do about Tom? And your boss says, I'm going to make him your supervisor. And you're like, this just doesn't make sense. This, this doesn't add up. God, how long am I going to have to put up with injustice? He says, much longer than you realize because you're getting ready to get steamrolled by people much more evil than you. Now, if that seems confusing to us, it was confusing to Habakkuk. Habakkuk prays, chapter 2, 13. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Or put more plainly, sure, we Israelites aren't perfect, but the Babylonians are worse, and you're raising them up? I don't understand that God. It's a great question. God, what are you doing? Why is it the Babylonians prosper and I struggle? And it's here as well that God is not silent. Habakkuk gives the tough questions and God doesn't dodge them. He doesn't sugarcoat his answers either. He says this uh, in Habakkuk 2.3. In response to this, he says, If the vision seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. If the vision seems slow. That would be the promise regarding the fact that the Chaldeans were coming to discipline Israel. Wait for it. It will surely come. And then he goes on to describe the vision where all the injustices get righted. But he's real. No, because... Yeah. <sighs> No, if you had read this from beginning, from the beginning of the book to this point, you'd realize that's not what this is saying. So clear, Habakkuk, that vision, it's out in the future. It's gonna seem slow. This past Thursday, uh, my son and I, we ran in the turkey trot here in Austin. A lot of fun. Now, uh, my son. Uh, what does you running in a turkey trot have to do with anything? just turned 11 
And uh, let me just say, we didn't train at all for the turkey trot. We just said, you know, let's do the turkey trot. So actually, uh, I came home, uh, and I had this idea that it'd be fun to do the turkey trot. And I thought, oh, I'll get, get Chase to do it with me. Now, I knew pretty much exactly how this conversation would go, because I know my son really well. But this is how it went. I said, hey, Chase, do you want to run the turkey trot with me on Thanksgiving? It's this race downtown. He's like, yeah, yeah, what is it? I said, well, it's this five-mile race, and we're going to run it together. And I kid you not, he says, Dad, we're going to win it. And um, that is, I mean, I knew he was going to say that, despite anything I could say at that moment. It didn't matter that there were 23,000 people in the turkey trot. Uh, my 11-year-old son and me, who did not train at all, we were going to win this race. So um, as hard as I tried, I couldn't convince Chase that the purpose of running the turkey trot is not to win it. Okay, try that on an 11-year-old kid. Try saying, hey, we're going to run a race, but we're not running it to win it. Um, there's just not a compartment in their brain for that. That just, that's dumb, Dad. Why would we run a race if we're not going to win it? I don't care if there are 23,000 people. I'm going to win that race, and you're going to come in second, Dad. That's, that's how this is going to go down. That's exactly how it's going to work. Now, I have to think that my thoughts toward God are almost equally as defiant, despite the information that he downloads to me. I know you keep telling me this is a journey. Despite the information he da- what, he what? Journey, God. I know you keep telling me that it's going to be hard. I know you keep telling me to expect ups and downs and twists and turns. But surely it's not going to really be that for me, God. Surely that's not the way it's going to really go. I'm just going to strap on my running shoes and win this thing called life. Okay? That's how this is going to work, God. Now, in the book of Habakkuk, Here's where this goes especially deep. Not complicated. Actually, very, very simple. So simple that you read it and you go, yeah, yeah, I know that. But we don't know it because to know it in our heads and to experience it in our life are two very different things. God says this to Habakkuk in response to his questions. He says, first he says it's going to be slow. Then he says, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous will live by faith. Well, I know that, God. I have to trust you. That's like, you know, 101 kind of stuff. But I said a moment ago, there's a battle going on between my head and my heart. And I see this very clearly because my head knows one thing and we can all know one thing, but to experience in our heart is very, very different. Come on. You are aware of how this is used in the New Testament. There's a reason why I pointed out how that verse is used three times, specifically in the New Testament pertaining to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. We are declared righteous by faith. Come on, Bilbo, we're going to walk a long ways together. It's going to be an epic adventure, and Bilbo knows this, but to know it and to experience it are two different things. Now, it's interesting that that phrase in Habakkuk, the right... Bilbo has nothing to do with Habakkuk. Righteous will live by faith. It's actually the most quoted line from Habakkuk. It comes up numerous times in the New Testament. One place it's alluded to, I think, is 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Where it's- what? You're not going to go with any of the places where it's clearly cited. You're going to go with a place where you think it's alluded to. It says, uh, we live by faith, not by sight. Yeah, that's not the same thing. 
<sighs> Although the concept kind of works if you get what's going on there. Because let's do a little therapy here. Your life ain't going the way you expected it. Yeah, we we learned this about you. Um, so how do we walk? We walk by faith, not by sight. And how would that look then? That despite the fact that things aren't going as you had expected, that you're still wrestling with sin and things aren't going hunky-dory and all that kind of stuff, that you are declared righteous by faith in Christ and that he's working your salvation and that you are truly righteous in Christ even though everything you see with your eyes tells you you're not, including your aging and flagging health and other things. Let's continue. Now, this phrase is often used as a way of saying that we're to believe things even though the evidence is contrary to that, like blind faith. I don't think that's what it's saying at all, actually. I think it's much more profound than that. We live, we thrive, we experience joy, we experience peace, we experience grace in our lives, not because we can see what is going to happen next in our lives, not because we can see how all the circumstances make sense in our lives, but we live and we thrive and we have peace in our lives by trusting the one who does see. That's how we survive and thrive in this journey. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by trusting the God of all circumstances, not by seeing circumstances that appeal to us. We live not by knowing what will happen next in our lives, by having our expectations met or exceeded, but by knowing the one who is in control of whatever happens next in our lives. We live by trusting him, Habakkuk. You're going to have to trust me because it's going to go from bad to worse. You're going to have to trust me. The vision will come, but it's going to come slowly. So you might not see how this all works out, but you're going to have to trust me that I really do have a plan here. Now, I brought a map with me. It's a large map that I won't be able to fold back up once I open it. But um, it's a map. Now, why do we use maps? What's the purpose of maps? It's simplistic to say we lose maps just so we know how to get from point A to point B. I think there's a... That's simplistic, huh? Because that's about the only time I use a map. Yeah. You know, or GPS is to get from point A to point B. So I can get there without getting lost. That's pretty much the only reason I use a map. A whole lot more to it than that. This particular map is a topographical map, and I know you can't see this, but there are little tiny lines that show you elevation. They show you how high it's going to go or how low it's going to do go low. They also show you rivers and lakes and mountains and uh, all sorts of different things. It's got a little scale on it so you know how long it is. If you think about it, a map is designed to, to create expectations. So, so you know what to expect on this journey that you're getting ready to go on. And so, yeah, the, the adventure, yeah. So um, here's something I've discovered in recent months as I've been reflecting on my own life and my own expectations. Now, here's how it's happened for me. I've got this map of my life. I mapped it out years ago. I sat down with a pencil and a piece of paper, and I drew out this map. Destination A. De what does this have to do with Habakkuk? What is he doing? He's like, in one sense, he, he, he gets the kind of the sweep and the, the details of the book of Habakkuk, but he thinks it has something to do with Bilbo and his own expectations for his own life. It doesn't. 
Ah! Destination B, destination C. And I drew it nice and topographically, and it looks really good. And then I handed it to God and said, God, take note of this, because here's the map of the way this adventure is going to go. Now, As if you're God. Got it, yeah. Now, if I could give you a visual of what I see happening in my life, it'd be something like this. I'll use a sheet of paper, like this is my map. I'm following my map, and Christ is in front of me. I am following him, but I'm staring at my map, and right now it's as if Christ turns around to me and says, you know, you're still staring at that map? I'm like, of course, it's my map. This is, this is the way it works. And it's as if he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to put, put the map away and just follow me. It sounds so pious, doesn't it? But this isn't a biblical teaching. Just put it away. You mean, you want me to put my expectations away, God? You want me to take this map, these expectations of how this journey is going to go, and you want me to just, just, just follow you, set all my expectations aside? Exactly. That, that's what I mean when I say don't live by your sight, by what you can see, by what you expect. Just trust me. Trust me and follow me on this journey. Now, you can imagine that's a bit stretching for me, and it's a bit stretching for all of us, and it was a bit stretching for Habakkuk, but I want you to hear what he writes. Hear this very carefully. At the end of Habakkuk, at the end of the three chapters, he says this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. What's Habakkuk saying? He's saying, okay, God, I'm putting my map away. If, if I don't get the harvest, I think I'm going to get. No, he's not saying that. He's, this isn't about any of Habakkuk's expectations regarding a harvest or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that even though all of the circumstances that he's going to experience, um, evil thriving in Judah, the Chaldeans coming to literally bring Judah to its knees, um, that we're, he's going to watch the destruction of the Holy Land, right? Even in the midst of all of that, that is not the determination as to whether or not he has a right standing before God, his Savior. You see what I'm saying? We continue. If I don't get the cattle, I think I'm going to get. If things don't go the way I expect. Habakkuk never mentioned anything about the cattle he intended to get. Expect them to go. Here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm taking my map and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to rejoice not in circumstances going my way. I'm going to rejoice in you, God. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that you are my God and I can trust you. I don't have to be in control of this whole deal here. I will live by faith and by faith I mean total surrender. I mean entrusting my well being to you, God. Which leads to my final question for us and our point of reflection today. What's on your map? I don't have one. What are your expectations? Yes, God, I will follow you so long as we hit this point and this point and this point and this point. So long as my family looks like this and my money looks like this and this work looks... I have no clue what tomorrow's going to bring. No clue at all. 
works like this. So long as she does this or he does that, I will follow you, God, so long as you're really good at reading my map. To which the scriptures would say, it just doesn't work that way. If you want to follow me, you have to follow me, which means you submit your map to me and let my expectations lead the way. I just want to beat my head against something. Because God loves us, God will never agree to our map. Really, no kidding. I had no idea. I'm so glad you cleared that up. Joy comes, peace comes, grace comes as we learn to put the map away and simply follow him, which I want us to increasingly do today. And it is a process. And it is a process. That's the end of this masleration. Wow. Um, therapy time. Self-therapy. And I'm glad he gave us the warning, but it doesn't excuse what he did. And again, what is he doing? This is another form of narcissistic eisegesis. He correctly understands what's going on in Habakkuk, but thinks that it has something to do with him. And his midlife crisis or whatever he's going through, and he's preaching itself therapeutically, and you know what was missing there? Yeah, I know. The cross, a crucified and risen Savior. Although he mentioned Habakkuk pointing to the fact that he's going to trust in God as Savior, but that's what was missing from all of this. And it would have been so easy for him to get to the cross because the righteous shall live by faith. Well, it's quoted three clear times in the New Testament in reference to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. See? I mean, it's right there. All you have to do is make the leap from from where it's quoted in the Old Testament to the places it's quoted in the New, and you can preach the gospel from Habakkuk. Who knew? But he didn't. Instead, we, we just need to submit our maps to God and just follow him, and it's a process. <sighs> Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's what you get when you engage in narcissistic eisegesis. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.